Let's all turn to the Word of God. We're reading today from that psalm we have been singing. That's Psalm 19. From time to time, you've heard me preface the reading by saying, let us turn to this word of life, this book of books, this God-breathed word. I think it's helpful from time to time to remind ourselves of that so that as we open up the scriptures, it will be a matter of opening them up with prayer, real prayer, knowing that it is the word of life. It is the book of books. It is the God-breathed word. Just look at Psalm 19 then, if you will. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of the heaven and his circuit unto the ends of it. And there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, 
my strength and my redeemer. Praise the Lord for the reading of his holy word today and the preaching of it too. For his name's sake. Will you turn please just now in your Bibles to the 19th Psalm that was read for us a little bit earlier. We announced last Lord's Day morning that we intend to start a series today upon God's wonderful Word. Just getting back to basics, back to the Word of God, back to the Bible. Many people have lost their confidence in God's Word. And we're living in a day where people have departed from the Scriptures, and even in the evangelical church, there's not the same emphasis on the centrality of the Word of God as there once was. So we're going to think this morning, just by way of foundation, about God's Word for our world. And we're going to look at Psalm 19. Let's pray together, invite the Lord to speak to our hearts, and let's call upon His name just now. Wonderful privilege to pray and to seek the very author of this book, and to pray that the God who inspired this Word will open our hearts and open our understanding. The psalmist prayed, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. God's wonderful word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank thee that in this world of darkness and in this world where so many people have different ideologies and ideas and philosophies, we thank thee, O God, that thou hast given to us this precious book, this word that God has inspired, this book that God has given. And it's described in thy word as being a lamp onto our feet and a light onto our pathway. And we thank thee, O God, that in the darkness there's this book, this book that gives light. And we pray now, O God, that the divine author, the Holy Spirit himself, will open our hearts and open our eyes and give us understanding. Lord, thou knowest our need. And we pray today, O God, that thy word will come to our hearts with freshness. And that thou wilt lead us on with thyself and create within us a greater appreciation and a greater understanding and a greater hunger for thy word. May, O God, we find ourselves in it so often, write it upon our hearts, we might not sin against thee. Grant now the infilling and the anointing of thy spirit. Glorify the Lord Jesus Christ and grant that all things will dovetail together for thine honor and for thy glory. We humbly pray with thanksgiving in the Savior's precious and worthy name. Amen. One of the world's oldest questions perhaps is, is there a God? And then if there is a God, how can we know him? Or is it possible to know him? It's a little bit like the question that was asked in the book of Job, chapter 23 and verse number 3, where Job says, Oh, that I knew where I might find him. And so many in our world are asking that same question or expressing that same sense of uncertainty in this world. How can I know God? Where can I find God? How could I know God? If there is a God, is it possible that God has revealed himself to us somehow. What is God like? 
What does God require of us? What is the way to God? And there are many, many worldviews whenever we consider those questions. Agnosticism really says we cannot be sure whether there is a God or not. And many in our world today are professed agnostics. They are not dogmatic either way. They're uncertain, unsure. There might be a God. There might not be a God. We just cannot know for sure. We cannot be dogmatic on these things. And then atheism simply says, well, there is no God for us to know. And they have the idea that the very thought of God is just an invention of the human mind or the invention of men. Then rationalism might acknowledge that there's a God somewhere. And we have senses and we have thoughts and we have reason and we have our five senses and somehow we can sort of discern what God is like by our own intellect and our own discovery and our own ability. And then there's another school of thought, deism. And the deists would uh, acknowledge that there is a God somewhere, there has to be, because we live in a created universe. And certainly there must be a God, but God has not revealed himself to this world, and therefore we do not really know anything at all about God. And then there are uh, others that find themselves in the school of liberalism, and the whole idea there is that, yes, there's a God, and God is the Father of one and all, and really God is what you make Him, and it doesn't really matter what your views are about God, they're all legitimate, and they believe in the universal fatherhood of God. And then uh, another school of thought is ecumenism that dictates or declares that all or certainly most religions lead to God. And it doesn't really matter what religious group you belong to. We're all worshiping the one and same God just in different ways. And God is like a God that sits on top of the mountain and you can choose to traverse the side of that mountain any, any which way you choose. And they're all as legitimate as each other. But the reality is that God is not to be found in any of these isms or any of these schools of thought that men have formulated. 1 Corinthians 1.21 says, The world by wisdom knew not God. The greatest intellects in this world have no real accurate concept of who God is. Therefore, man needs revelation outside of himself. New Age philosophy teaches the idea of inner light, that there is light naturally within us that reveals God to us. But man needs revelation outside of himself. And there are two reasons for that. First of all, because of God's majesty. The God of heaven is a God of glory, a God of infinite majesty, who by searching can find out God. The book of Isaiah says that God's ways are higher than ours, and God's thoughts are higher than ours, and His ways are past finding out. God's bigness, His greatness, His majesty indicates that we need revelation outside of ourselves. And then on the absolute opposite side of the spectrum, there's man's depravity. It's not within us to understand anything about God at all. The Word of God says in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that the natural man, 
And as man left to himself without divine intervention, the, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Neither can he know them, for they are foolishness unto him. So God's greatness on one hand and man's smallness on the other hand indicate that we need God somehow to reveal himself to us. And that revelation comes outside of himself. Now it stands to reason that if God created this world and God created us for a purpose, and if God is loving and kind and gracious, that God would have revealed himself. It's reasonable to assume that God would reveal himself to this world in certain ways or in some ways. And in Psalm 19, this great psalm, the psalmist indicates, David indicates, that God primarily has revealed himself to this world of ours and the inhabitants of it in two distinct ways. Verse number one, the heavens declare, and the word declare there, it means preach or tell forth or speak out. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. And the first six verses, therefore, of Psalm 19 show to us that God has revealed himself generally and naturally in creation in the created universe. And then there's a turning point in verse number seven, where it moves from creation to the word of God. The law of God is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And so in verses 7, down especially to verse number 10, you've got scriptural revelation. God revealing himself specifically and specially and supernaturally through the word. And it's the law of God that is able to convert the soul. It's the testimony of the Lord that is sure that is able to give wisdom. It's the statutes of the Lord that are right, rejoicing the heart. And the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So these verses here speak about God's word. And it's God's word that brings light. It's God's word that opens the heart. It's God's word that imparts wisdom. It's God's word that is able to convert and turn people back to the God that we need to be reconciled with. God, therefore, has made himself known. And if God has made himself known, then God is knowable. And that's what salvation is. Salvation is coming to know God intimately. Before the Savior went to the cross in John 17, he prayed his great high priestly prayer. John 17 is a chapter that every Christian should familiarize themselves with. It'll thrill your heart and bless your soul. And in the third verse of John 17, the Savior said, This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. And the purpose of the Bible is to bring us to a place whereby we can not only know about God, but we can know God intimately and personally through this living book. God's word 
for our world. We're going to look at those two aspects of Psalm 19 this morning, verses 1 to 6, and then very simply verses 7 to 14 as well. The first part of the psalm speaks of general or natural revelation, God revealing himself in the created universe. Now, God has revealed himself in creation. God has revealed himself in nature. And God also reveals himself in providence. But the first part of Psalm 19 highlights God's revealing himself, making something of his power and wisdom and goodness known in creation. Now, you'll notice in verse number one, the reality of natural revelation. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Now, whenever the scripture there speaks about the heavens, it's not so much speaking about the heaven that God dwells in, the dwelling place of God, but it's speaking about the atmospheric heavens, the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, the galaxies, the constellations, and then the firmament, the sky above us. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. The word declare literally means to preach or to tell out. And the word show means to reveal, so we could render it this way. The heavens preach the glory of God, and the firmament reveals his handiwork. And of course, it is there plainly to be seen, the reality of God's creation. Over there in Romans chapter 1, we read in verse number 20, that the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Paul says whenever we look at creation and we look at the heavens and we look at the sun, the moon, the stars, and if you're able to take a telescope and look deeper into space and into the heavens, Paul says these created things are clearly seen, they're clearly revealed. And we see something of God's power and God's wisdom and God's majesty, and God's glory in the created universe around us. The heavens declare, preach out the glory of God. And astronomers across the world and down through the ages are amazed whenever they look into the far reaches of space and they see something of creation. They might acknowledge that it's creation, but they see the majesty of the created universe. It would be very foolish for us to deny the reality of creation. But some people do. Some religious groups do. Some Buddhists and some Hindus deny the very fact of created matter and reality. They say that everything around us is an illusion and it's not real at all. And it's all but a figment of our imagination. We're not really here. We only think we are. And they deny the reality of creation. But as somebody wisely said, God has left his fingerprints over all of creation. So in Psalm 19:1, you've got the reality of creation or the reality of natural revelation. And then you've also got the accessibility of creation or the accessibility of this form of revelation. God has not hidden his handiwork. 
Whenever you consider the major things that God does in our world, God does not hide it. Whenever the Son of God was crucified, the Apostle Paul said to one king in the book of the Acts of the Apostles that this thing was not done in a corner. Jesus Christ was lifted up upon a cross. He was crucified at the corner of a metropolitan city before many, many witnesses. He didn't hide his great work of redemption. And so it is with creation. It is clearly and it is plainly seen. God is not hidden his handiwork. We can see it every single day. And if we cannot see it, we can hear it. And if we cannot hear it, we can touch it. And God has put eternity within our hearts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as soon as God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, and Adam opened his eyes, he beheld creation. And he could see all around him that he was now in a created universe. There's a lovely uh, group of verses in the eighth psalm. The psalmist says in verse number three of Psalm 8, When I consider thy heavens and the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained, what is man, that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man, that thou visitest him, and the psalmist was amazed whenever he looked at creation around him and he saw above him the very glory of God stretched out. God's glory revealed. He couldn't escape it. God's creation is accessible. You know, astronomers and scientists will tell us that the observable universe, that is that part of the universe that they can see something of, let alone that which is outside of the observable universe. But the observable universe is 93 billion light years across. A light year is the distance that light travels in one year. I think it's is it 8 or 13 minutes or something it takes for the light of the sun to reach earth. 93 billion light years is the breadth of the observable universe. So God has made it very accessible. We can't ignore it. And we cannot escape it. And then there's also the continuity of God's creation or God's revelation. Verse number 2 of Psalm 19 says, Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. It's not that we see little snippets from time to time of God's handiwork. God's handiwork and God's revelation in creation is there continually. Day unto day. And then whenever the sun sets... And darkness surrounds us when we look into the, the atmospheric heavens. We see aspects of God's creation during the night that we cannot see at the day. And we see aspects of it at the day that we cannot see at night. It does not end. Day and night both reveal continually God's creation. And it's absolutely inescapable. But modern man, with his growing rebellion and rejection, of God and God's Word chooses not to see the fingerprints of God in creation. And then whenever you look at verses 3 and 4, not only do we have the reality of it and the accessibility of it and the continuity of it, but in verses 3 and 4, the universality of God's creation or God's revelation in creation. There's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through the whole earth 
and their words to the end of the world. If you were to speak to the Inuit people of Alaska or the Aboriginal people of Australia and they live in different hemispheres and different territories, yet they can still see the handiwork of God in creation. People can look at the Rocky Mountains, or they can look at the deserts, they can look at the tundras, they can look at the rivers, the streams, the oceans, whatever part of the world you find yourself in, whatever language you speak, whatever people group you belong to, there is no speech or language where the voice, the speaking voice of creation is not heard, and their line has gone out throughout the whole world. The old theologians used to talk about what they called the consent of nations. And what they mean by that is, regardless of what nation or people group or tribal community you visit in this world, there's a general consensus of opinion that there is a God somewhere, the consent of nations. People from every tribal group worship something. They've got a concept of some type of God and some type of spirituality. And they endeavor to worship something or someone, and they've got a, a sense of right and wrong. The unevangelized and the unreached tribes of the world will acknowledge there's a creator somewhere. I'm reading presently the biography of Stephen Alford, who was a great revivalist, evangelist, and Bible expositor. He was born to missionary parents. His parents ministered in Angola, in the western coast of Africa and the southern part of that continent. And his father came across a tribal leader in one of the villages. And he asked the tribal leader, how do you know that there is a God? And the tribal leader gave this answer. He says, well, how would I know if a deer walked through my newly plowed garden? He said, I would see the hoof prints and the hoof marks everywhere. And he was indicating that I know there's a God because I see his fingerprints and his footprints everywhere in all of creation. Mr. Alford said, I followed that man into the village. I sat down with him and his tribal group and I shared the gospel and I shared the message of Jesus Christ with them. But I came to realize as I spent time with them that they, they observed in their own way something of the Ten Commandments. They worshipped. They prayed. They had a sense of right and wrong. They knew that it was wrong to lie. They knew that it was wrong to steal. They knew that it was wrong to commit adultery. And he says, furthermore, they also seemed to offer sacrifices that reflected so much of what we read in the book of Leviticus. They believed in blood sacrifice. They believed in payment for sin. They believed in some type of blood atonement. And then he says, we walked out into the, 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 the bush again, and there was an anthill, and he says, this tribal chief with his hand just cut the top off the anthill, and some of the ants were running about. And he said to Mr. Alford, the tribal leader, he says, how could I communicate with one of these little creatures? And before the missionary had a, an opportunity to answer his question, the tribal leader immediately said, I would have to become an ant. And that just gave the missionary a wonderful opportunity again to share the gospel. We're like little ants running about. And God has revealed himself. You can see it in creation. 
You can see it written in your conscience. You know the difference between right and wrong. But for us to understand who God is, God became a man. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. The universality of God's creation. God has put eternity, the Bible says, within our hearts. But then there's something else about creation, and that's the insufficiency of creation or natural revelation. Creation is not sufficient to show us everything that we need to know about God. If somebody looked at creation, if they had any wisdom, they would acknowledge somebody created this. And whoever created this must be mighty and powerful and wise. One old uh, philosopher said, whoever created the universe must have been the greatest mathematician ever because they saw all of the laws of mathematics in the universe. But we can understand what God requires of us or how we can come to know God intimately and personally. The heavens preach the glory of God, but whenever Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, it was like he put out his own eyes and rendered himself spiritually blind. And no longer was he able to read creation and come to the the knowledge of who God is because he has put out his eyes and sin has rendered man blind. There was a a man in England recently in a a prison cell and I think he took a, a barrow pen and he used that pen to put out his own eyes and blind himself. Horrendous thing to do. And yet that is what sin has done to the human race. Sin has put out man's eyes. And so all of the heavens declare and tell forth and preach the majesty and the glory and the wisdom of our God that man can no longer see it. Rather, he denies it in his blindness. Natural revelation is not redemptive, but Romans 1.20 says it renders us inexcusable. The law is stamped on our conscience. The handiwork of God is stamped on creation. But how can I know God? How can I be accepted before God? How can I find God? I can see evidence of God all around me and we're fearfully and wonderfully made, but it's not enough. I need something else. That's why the psalmist says in verse 7, the law of God is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Verses 1 to 6 of Psalm 19 refer to the handy work of God. Verses 7 through to 14 refer to the handwriting of God. This book that God has given is God's means of revealing himself to us supernaturally and in a very special way. Showing us exactly who he is. Showing us who we are. Revealing to us the human problem. And showing us that there's a way back to God. It all speaks of God's word, his law, his testimony, his statutes, his commandment, his word, his judgments. Now as we think about that, we have to remind ourselves of the necessity of special revelation. Without God revealing himself, we would have no accurate knowledge of God, no accurate spiritual knowledge of ourselves, no accurate knowledge of the human problem. 
and no accurate knowledge of the way back to God. It would just be one idea pitted against another, one philosopher against another, one religion against another. But God has revealed himself. Leave out the Bible, and man gropes in the dark. And we are living, friends, in days of darkness. There are so many political and moral and spiritual and religious ideologies in this world. And it's just every man for himself, one against the other. Man needs something plain, something authoritative, something outside of himself, something that God has given us in spite of ourselves, that we can see and understand something that is permanent and something that is solid that we can cast ourselves on. And God, therefore, has given us the Bible, His law, His statutes, His commandment, His testimonies. Sadly, today, this nation of ours and here in the West, we're getting further and further away from the Word of God. It's like a little maybe a little dinghy tied up to a, a, a solid mooring. And then the rope breaks and the tide just carries that dinghy out towards the high seas. And that's what we're like as a nation. We have cut ourselves off from God, detached ourselves from His Word, and we're floating and floating and floating into an ocean of, of despair for many and uncertainty that lies ahead. The necessity of special revelation. But then think as well, and we're almost finished, the nature of special revelation. The Bible is God's word for our world. It is God's letter to mankind. It is God's revelation of himself. Now, since the Garden of Eden, since man sinned, if you go through the Old Testament scriptures from Genesis 3 through to Malachi, 400 silent years, you commence the New Testament at Matthew and you see the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. God has always been revealing himself in different ways at different times through different means to different people. In the Old Testament, you've got what people call theophany. God revealing himself in a physical manner. The pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud that guided the children of Israel was God manifesting himself, God revealing himself. The Shekinah glory that filled the temple and filled the tabernacle before it was God revealing himself. The burning bush was God revealing himself. And last year we considered some of the great Christophanies of the Old Testament, the Son of God appearing in human form before the incarnation. It was God revealing himself. But none of those revelations of God were permanent. And none of them were universal. They were God revealing himself temporarily to an individual or to a group of people for a short period of time. And then God has revealed himself through miracles. You've got miracles in the Old Testament, the parting of the Red Sea. Elisha was a man that was used of God uh, to reveal God by way of miracle. Christ performed many miracles in his life and ministry. And they were all, again, revelations of God, supernaturally, outside of nature, outside of the norm, God revealing himself. And then God also spoke in, in Bible times through dreams and through visions. Joseph had dreams. Daniel had dreams. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. 
Others saw visions and saw God speaking to them in certain ways. And then you also had prophetic utterances too. God speaking to individuals verbally. And so much of the Word of God records that God said, God spake unto, the Word of God came unto. And many of those prophets that heard God's speaking voice, they wrote down the Word of God. And we'll think about that next week. How we got our Bible. How we know it's the Word of God. How God inspired and, and, and influenced men. And how the Word of God came to men. And how they recorded at the inspiration of Scripture. The Bible says that no prophecy of Scripture is of private interpretation. That literally means it's not dreamed up within man's heart naturally. But holy men of God speak as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost came upon them and carried them along. And they often wrote it down word for word as God spoke. And then, of course, God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. God was manifest in the flesh. And if you want to know who Jesus or God is, look at Jesus Christ. He reveals the heart of God. Now there's a, a verse that I'd like you to turn to. We're almost finished, but the book of Hebrews chapter 1 and verse number 1. You'll get people nowadays coming to you by way of some of the cults or the charismatic movement. And they'll say, well, God has revealed himself in a new way. God has given me a new vision. I've got a new word from God. Or there's this new book that you need to read. Or there's this new witness on the earth. Or there's this group that is bringing revelations afresh from God. But the opening verses of Hebrews and the book of Hebrews deals a lot with things that God has finished. Jesus Christ on the cross offered one sacrifice for sins forever. He was the first and last. The last great priest. No more sacrifice for sins. Also the last great prophet. And it says in Hebrews 1, verse number 1, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners. That just means God who at different times and in different ways. Listen to what it says. Speak in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. And really what the Word of God is saying there, that everything that God wants to say to this world of ours, he has said in the person and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And really God has got nothing more to say. And the Bible, the inspired Word of God, is God's divine record of the person and work of Jesus Christ and everything we need to know about God, about ourselves, about how to get to God is in this precious book. Peter describes it as being a more sure word of prophecy and it's permanent, it's universal, it's unchangeable and it's unchanging. The Bible is God's revelation of his being, God's revelation of his nature, God's revelation of his requirements. God's revelation of his redemption to fallen man. It's sufficient. Jesus Christ said to the Pharisees of his day, Search the scriptures, for in them you think that ye have life. 
and they are they that testify of me. He didn't say you need to go outside of the Scriptures. He said stick to the Scriptures. The two discouraged saints on the road to Emmaus, whenever the Lord Jesus came and walked alongside them, what does it say? It says, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, the Scriptures, He spoke unto them the things concerning Himself. He didn't have to go outside of the Scriptures. He didn't have to bring in some guru who had got new revelation, new dreams, new visions. No, He stuck with the Scriptures. The Word of God is sufficient. The Word of God is inspired All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The Word of God is infallible. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy Word is truth. The Word of God is redemptive. It shows us God's plan of salvation, how we can know God intimately and personally. And the Word of God, of course, is Christ-centered. This book, friends, is God's Word for our world. It's God's Word for you this morning. And in every day that God will give, God has revealed Himself in a special and in a supernatural way through this precious book. It's described in Hebrews 4.12 as being the living Word of God. This book is a living book. The Word of God is quick, living, powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword. In Psalm 19, verses 10 and 11, the psalmist describes God's Word in this wise, More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. David says this book is of more value than all the gold in the world. This book is of more value than the very food that I eat. What a precious book the Word of God really is. Can I ask you this morning, do you read your Bible? Do you read it every day? Do you meditate upon it? Do you read it together as a family? So many of our problems, so much of our coldness, so much of our sin and backsliding, so many of our doubts, so many of our mistakes, So much of our unhappiness is due to the neglect of this book. John Bunyan wrote in the front flyleaf of his Bible, Sin will keep me from this book, or this book will keep me from sin. If you ever read Pilgrim's Progress, it throbs with the heartbeat of Scripture. And John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress, primarily from a prison cell in Bedford jail. And he said after it, concerning the Bible, the Word of God, he says, I was never out of my Bible. This is a precious book. I worked for a year in every home crusade, and there was a letter that came through one day, and there'd been a a Bible conference in Africa. And at that Bible conference, copies of John's gospel in the language of the people would be given out. And a man wrote back to say that he had traveled for three days on foot to get to that conference because he had heard he might receive just a little bit of God's Word in his own language and be able to take it home and keep it for himself. Mary Jones and her Bible, it's a lovely story. Mary Jones walked through the hills and valleys of Wales for days to go to a man's house to ask for a copy of God's Word. 
And some of us have maybe 20 or 30 copies of the Scriptures maybe in our homes. And yet, as Spurgeon said, you could take your finger and maybe write the word damnation in the dust over the front of your Bible. God's wonderful Word. God's Word for our world. The God who's revealed Himself in creation has revealed Himself personally in Scripture. And still today, it's God's Word. It's the world's bestseller. May God write His Word upon our hearts. And thank you so much for your attention this morning.